Our Jesus, what a gift it is to be yours. And that we as a community of believers know that you are present right here with us, that we come into this place and this space into the very presence of the living God. I pray especially right now in this moment that you would make us aware of you right here with us. I'm very aware that I don't know what our brothers and sisters have carried into this space or as they're watching in their living room or their bedroom or their office, what they're holding right now, but you do. So we pray God of all comfort and God of all compassion and strength and hope and healing that you would come alongside us right where we are today. We thank you, Jesus, in your name, amen. In this series that we're in, we're in the book of Philippians and this letter Paul writes from his heart, those most beautiful letters that, that you read. Some of us are words of affirmation, folks. Some of us like service, don't tell me, just show me. Some of us, I, we, we get, respond in all these ways. But here what we see a glimpse of in Paul's writing is how deeply he cared for these people. And we know from the historical account that he wasn't writing from a place of comfort or luxury, but he was writing from a place of personal pain. And yet he wrote this letter to the Philippians, pouring out his heart to them. And this is one of those parts that gets really personal. It's some names, it's some connections between them. And in the context of the rest, I believe it has some great significance for us today. So we're going to start in verse 19 today. And these are co-workers of Paul, these folks that he's writing about right now. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Now, keep in mind, this was not a time when you could text or FaceTime someone or do a quick call or email and find out how are you over there in Philippi? What's going on? What's happening in your world? Instead, this was a time when they were dependent on, hey, are you going to come and tell me how y'all are doing? Because otherwise, I don't know how you're doing. So he says, I hope to send you Timothy, not only so you can know how I'm doing, but also so then I get word back of you. I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like them who will show genuine concern for your welfare. You know those people that, that you send that you know will communicate not only your words, but your heart. He says, I know that he will communicate this care that I have for you. He will give you this letter, but he will also share with you my love. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I know how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs 
for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you will be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. The church itself couldn't come to Paul's side. They couldn't all come and be close to him. So they sent a messenger. Now, more than just sending an email or a text, they sent someone who would take resources, but also heart and care for Paul. And so there's this, he went on this message of love and care for Paul. And yet when he got there, he himself faced illness and almost lost his life because of it. So there's this interchange, this back and forth of care and compassion between Paul and the church that he established as they show this care for each other and also what he calls the interests of Christ. This overarching theme that I think harkens back to the beginning of chapter two, that Christ himself emptied himself. He chose, like Elder Knowlton said, to pray, how can I make a difference? And he gave his whole life for it, right? He emptied himself so that he could show up in love. I love that story, how he showed up in love for the student. This, the interests of Christ, interests that were self-emptying and focused instead on the interests of the other. One commentary summarizes this passage. This passage reminds us that Paul's theology was a theology for life he lived from day to day. Now pay attention to this part. He had no unhealthy gap between theological convictions and behavior, but a complex interweaving of the two. This is visible not only in the way Timothy and Epaphroditus exemplify what it means to put the interests of Christ uh, and therefore other people ahead of their own concerns, but also in the way Paul himself puts the interests of Epaphroditus first, making his plans contingent on the Lord's guidance, and despite the letter's emphasis on joy, legitimizes sorrow over human pain. You see, he's modeling that this following after Jesus isn't something that is separated from how we treat other people. This following after Jesus isn't something that I believe, but rather that I live. It's integrated. And so Paul says, my heart is for you. And so therefore, even though this Timothy is a comfort to me, I send him to you because I care about you. And even though you sent Epaphroditus to me, Epaphroditus wants to return to you because he cares that you heard he was ill and he knows that it's hurting your heart. So they're modeling for us in how Paul sends Timothy and Timothy goes and shows concern for them and Epaphroditus came and showed concern for Paul and Paul sends him back unselfishly this circle of love in which somehow in laying down your life you actually raise it up again. That somehow in losing your life you actually find it in a deeper sense. That somehow in pouring out yourself for others you find yourself refreshed. 
And so Paul models this interest of Christ, this self-emptying for the sake of someone else. My grandma recalls this story. Um, my grandma uh, grew up on a farm, so did my mom, but there's these generations of, of farmers in Minnesota, and um, my mother's grandfather came over when he was 13 years old from Denmark and started apprenticing on a farm and then ended up having a farm in any way on both sides, just farmers in Minnesota. My mom left the farm and went to Seattle, so I have, don't ask me any part about how to do any of that because I wasn't there. However, those are the roots, right? And my grandmother talks about that they would always make everything. How many of you had that experience? Like, we're just, like, you're way of uh, being raised was that you made everything from scratch or you grew it or you did it. Anyone else? Okay, just see, it's so small, small handful of people. But anyway, she talks about that they would grind the wheat and they would make the bread and that they would, she would just be in the kitchen all the time, but they would do all of these things. She said she remembers when she had this loaf of bread, this white, squishy bread, and she was like, what is this? This does not look like bread. <laughs> and she said that she remembers that they talked about this quote, a doctor at the time said, um, she remembers this quote, we'll look back on this and realize that we created sickness. Because we have stripped everything that's meant to be in the process of making food, we've stripped it all out and we've given them this thing called wonder bread, not to be confused with wonder, but she said we stripped it all out and, and she said I will never forget that quote that we have created sickness because we've separated things that weren't meant to be separated. And I find this to be profound not just in the sense of food and health but in spiritual health because we are often trying to separate things that were never meant to be separated. We're often trying to strip down and parse out things that really are things meant to be held together. Belief and behavior. Um, our relationship with God and our relationship to others and our relationship with creation and our relationship to ourselves. we are made to be whole beings, connected in every way. And so Paul says, I can't separate myself from you because you are a part of me. And these brothers are a part of our experience of faith, and so how we treat each other is how we ourselves experience our, our faith as well. There's these, this integration that sometimes we end up with false separations in our spiritual life. Well, this is just about me and God. What are you trying to get involved in here? But it's integrated. Um, there's no separation. So what Jesus came to do is to redeem and to restore that which was separated, to be a bridge between. Yet still we live in this world where the default model is everyone for themselves. Consciously or unconsciously, we can start to focus on our needs and the needs of those that are closest to us. And yet Paul, what he commends is those who are willing to look out for the interests of Christ Jesus, the interests of the other. It's this rare call of believers to show kindness and love for others that goes beyond what we experience in the everyday. Jeffrey Rubin tells a story about a young man who found a wallet in the street and he was able to see by the identification that it belonged to an officer. So he returned to the precinct 
and he handed over the wallet. And the detective was so grateful and so surprised that here his wallet was with everything inside. And he said, thank you. And he pulled out the money and he said, here's $40. And the young man replied, thanks, but if I wanted money, I'd have kept your wallet. <laughs> I came to give it back to you. I, I was planning to share this, this story this morning, and then last night, late, one of our members texted me that she lost her wallet. She lost her key, her wallet, her driver's license, and $170 inside. But she was able to track um, where her key was. Uh, man, my car is too old, I thought, as soon as I read this text message late. I would not have anything to track. Like, there was nothing. I would not have found it. But she was able to track her key and find out that it was around Grocery Outlet. So she went over there and started looking in the around the store and then in the store. And if you know over there, Priscilla and Eric, um, all the Grocery Outlets, are they're a franchise, but they're owned locally. And so Priscilla and Eric are a really beautiful couple that are deeply invested in Grand Terrace, and she's one of the co-owners there. So she went up and she was talking to Priscilla, and Priscilla said, I have your wallet. I ha I've kept it in a safe place. And she said she got it returned to her, and all the money was there, and the key was there, and her license was there. And it was just this, again, last night, this is at 10.30 last night, I get this text that this is the exact same experience where she says, here, ha have some money. And she's like, no, 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 this is for kindness. Like, this is because I wanted you to have this, right? I wanted you, I wanted to show interest and care for you uh, above anything else. We remember Jesus' words when he said to us, we are the light of the world. That he didn't ask us to manufacture the light, he didn't ask you to create it, but just to shine, just to share it, just to take in all the light of Christ like Paul did. The reason he's able to say rejoice, the reason he's able to have joy is because he took on and took in the light and the joy of Jesus and it couldn't help but pour over into his experience with others. So how does our belief in Jesus come into contact with our day-to-day -day affairs? How is it, Paul would ask us, that, that all that we have in our hearts and our minds ends up pouring out into our daily lives? One commentator says, perhaps it is only during times of persecution that the church has been free from the plague of both clergy, that is pastors, and laity members who lead in, lend intellectual assent to its teaching and go through the motions of its liturgy, our practice, but who never allow the gospel to soak deeply into their souls to transform our lives. That there's something about going through hard things or struggle or persecution that strips those things away, the pretense of the ways that we might pretend or separate our belief from our daily life. So the example of Paul himself, of Timothy, of Epaphroditus, are that because of their commitment to the gospel, that they have adopted the role of slaves, it says in verse 22, that they're willing to put their own welfare second to the welfare of the Philippians to put their interests above their own. Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul understood that Christian commitment means losing your life 
and finding it. That somehow when we get to our lowest, that we can actually be at the place where we can receive the most. Let's turn to a proverb, a proverb 11, Proverbs 11.25. It says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. One version translates it, whoever pours out will also be poured into. I love that picture, that we who are here who have said, yes, I believe in Jesus. As we pour out, we also receive. As we lose our life, we also find it. As we refresh, so we are also refreshed. Paul said, I received your concern through Epaphroditus, and now I sent him back to you so that you can receive my concern, my love, my tender compassion. Can we just be honest? Sometimes it's hard to do, right? Sometimes it's hard to do this. Sometimes it's hard to think of others above ourselves. We have all sorts of reasons. But this week, um, Paul Chung had his birthday this week. And I want to share with you one of his stories of putting his own interests second to the interests of someone else. And he lived out this principle and ended up, like Proverbs 11.25 says, being himself refreshed in that process. This instance that happened with me in South Lancaster, Massachusetts, was at the end of the four months before I finally said, okay, Lord, I give up. What do you want me to do? And he had me talk to that lady. God has a plan specifically for you. Now, when I was a kid growing up on the island of Oahu in Kaneohe Church, I'd think of all the dreams that I wanted to become when I finally leave the island. I ended up going to Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan. I joined the acrobatics team. And then in 1971, the General Conference started a General Conference acrobatic team. And I ended up joining that for four months. We sang and performed for Vespers and then did our acrobatics. We probably performed 240 programs in those four months and 120 Vespers programs during that time. At South Lancaster, Massachusetts, near the end of the four months, coach would always say, okay, when we're done, mingle, talk. I hate talking to people. I remember when I was in Pathfinders, they said, God has a plan for you and whatever he wants you to do, get ready for it. And they always said, whatever you don't wanna do, that's what God has planned. And so I remember telling myself from the time I was 10 years old, man, Lord, don't ask me to be a coal porter because I hated talking to people that I didn't know. So after we were done with the Vespers performance, I snuck out behind everybody and went out the door. And then I told myself, well, okay, God, if you think I need to do this, I will. So I was willing. So I walked around the church and there was a little old lady sitting in the back pew all by herself. So I said, this must be the one. So I walked over, said hi, and then she blew me away. She said, you remind me of my dead son. I've been praying for you to come talk to me. So I did. 
And that kind of started the ball rolling. I found out that when you're afraid to talk to people, the hardest thing to do is listen. So I, I like that. I like not having to talk to people. I just needed to, to ask them about themselves. And so when I asked her, and she explained that her son had died, and been a few years, and she was still in mourning, and then she saw me and said, you were an answer to prayer, and so I said, wow. Because of that one incident at the end of the four months of touring, it, it ended up making me see that maybe I could actually talk to people with God's help. I ended up becoming a phys ed and math teacher for 46 years, and I did have to talk every day. So God's plan was for me to open my mouth and talk to people. But I, I never knew her name or anything about her other than she was from South Lancaster, Massachusetts. If I saw her today, I would tell her that that one instance changed my life and helped me for the next 46 years teaching kids. My name is Paul Chong, and this is my story. The one who refreshes others will themselves be refreshed also. I'm so grateful Paul shared that story. I invite you to look at Matthew 26, 39. In this one verse in Jesus' life and ministry, Matthew 26 and verse 39, it says, going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I believe that's the most powerful prayer that you and I can pray. The most powerful prayer. Not my will, but your will. About any and every circumstance that we are facing here collectively, about any of the ways that God is trying to bring together your belief and your life, pray not my will, but your will. Because every part of Paul's experience, the reason this is all connected in verse uh, in these verses with the beginning of the chapter, Philippians chapter 2, that Christ Jesus, that example of how he emptied himself for our sake, becomes the model, the example of what it looks like to live the Christ life, the following after Jesus. That prayer, Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, that Christ prayed for his enemies, Father forgive them, they don't know what they are doing, embrace the world. It took every sinner that lived and should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time, upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God, and to all forgiveness is freely offered, that whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life. It is this openness, this forgiveness, this willingness to give of himself completely that Jesus longs to do in and through our lives today. Well, how does it happen? And in closing, Terry Hershey describes talking with a neighbor of his in the grocery store, and he was shaking his head like we might do today, saying, where do we find sanity and sanctuary? Where do we find hope? Because the world seems so chaotic. There seems to be so much. When you look at the natural disasters and the suffering and the war and the challenge, and Phil told him this, it helps to distinguish between big world and small world. 
The light bulb comes on when we do this. Big world is the news in your face, all the anger, what we can't control, the pain, all of these things. How can we make a difference in big world? It's hard to know. But in small world, the place where we stand today, the neighbors that you talk to, the coworkers, the, the friends, the people around you, that small world, the places where we can give a hug, where we can extend forgiveness, where we can love, where we can pick someone up after they fall down, where we can repent of what we have done wrong, where we can cry with each other and embrace, where we can reconcile and heal, where we can share what we have with someone else. There's that old camp song that says, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And that spark is in you. That spark is in me. And so we can show that care and the interests of Christ in how we interact. So I commend to you the example of Jesus Christ who prayed not my will but yours, who said, I will empty myself for their sake. We belong to Christ and so therefore our most authentic identity is as those who are believers showing kindness and offering grace and living in love. Just like Timothy, Paul, and the lesser known Epaphroditus showed us.